I want to invite you to turn in your copy of the Scriptures to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. How many of you were here when we began our exposition of the Gospel of John? Do you remember how long ago that was? I had to look it up myself. Which is the <laughs> uh, I believe, if I looked at my records correctly, we began in January of 22. So we're a year and a half to get through the Gospel of John. And uh, what, a, what a journey it has been, uh, and, and an enjoyable one. The Gospel of John has, has really become more and more sweet as I've studied it, and I hope that for you... It has done the same. So this morning what I'd like to do is to, to kind of look back, um, to reflect on what we've learned, to kind of bring some things together. I like to end each exposition with kind of a theology of uh, what are our big takeaways from the gospel or, or whatever book it is that we're preaching, in this case the gospel of John. But let me just pause for a moment and ask for God's help as we consider um, the totality of the book. Father, we thank you for this journey that we've been on as we have observed our dear Savior who lived and died for us. Um, we pray that you would use even these reflections as we um, are together uh, this morning as your word instructs us that we would change through our time together. We pray these things in your Son's precious name. Amen. Suppose that you had someone in your workplace that you had been sharing the gospel with. And suppose this, young, suppose this person had kind of over your time of dialogue with them had kind of, had kind of shifted from kind of opposed to the things of God to, to willing to consider the claims of Christ. And just suppose hypothetically this person came to you in your office or your cubicle or your workstation and said, you know, I'm thinking maybe I should read the Bible. What should I read? What would you recommend to them? Well, start in Genesis, right? <laughs> I mean, that is a good place to start, right? It's the very, the very beginning. But I would submit to you, by the time they get part the way through Genesis, and definitely by the time they get into Exodus, they're going to get a little bogged down, right? And might not make it to the, the central focus of the whole story. What other book might you suggest? Well, start... Start with the New Testament then, maybe. I mean, Matthew seems like a good, logical place to start, and that certainly would not be a bad example, a bad place to start. I mean, any place is a good place to start, right? It's all inspired. Um, but I would suggest that there might be even a better recommendation if you're thinking specifically evangelistically, right? And I would submit to you that perhaps the Gospel of John is a good place, especially for an unbeliever, to start. Now, why is that? Well, because the Gospel of John, of all the four Gospels, the Gospel of John is perhaps the most evangelistic of the Gospels. Can we put it that way? In other words, its purpose is specifically and explicitly to, to evoke the response of belief. You see, knowing who Jesus is must cause us to believe in 
him. Let me say that again. Knowing who Jesus is must cause us to believe in him. And so sometimes you will see um, a missions organization that are printing excerpts from the Bible to go to to some place that does not have a lot of the scriptures. Have you ever been part of an exercise where you'll, you'll cut and bind and staple together little booklets that contain a portion of scripture? Have any of you ever been part of that? And when you do, that's usually what? It's usually two books. It's usually John and Romans, right? Why? Because the Gospel of John presents in an evangelistic way who Jesus is. And then, and then the epistle to the Romans comes along and explains how the truth of Jesus Christ converts the soul. Right? So it takes the, the Gospel, the good news of Jesus, and it helps us to understand how that transforms a person. So John and Romans is, is very kind of staple to the propagation of the gospel. And so for that reason, it has been good for us to journey with the gospel writer John as we have seen who Jesus is, which should cause us to believe. Now, John, like all of the gospel writers, made editorial choices, all right? Now, I don't mean by editorial choices that he spun the story. He was accurate with the story he was truthful with, with the occurrences of Christ. But when I say editorial, choi- editorial choices, what I mean is that all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all chose to include certain things, right? And we will sometimes even hear Matthew, Mark, and Luke referred to as what? As the synoptic Gospels, right? Which just kind of signals you to the fact that John is in a category of his own. He's a little bit different than the three others. He has a different emphasis. He includes different materials, and it puts John kind of in a subcategory. I mentioned to you at the outset of the book when we were first beginning to study it that eight of the eight miracles that were recorded in John, six of them are unique. Same thing with the upper room discourse. Chapters 14 through 17 are completely unique to John. In fact, over 90% of the book is unique to John. It is not contained in the other Gospels. So, so John gives us some vital information, some key information that we, that we would not have known just from the synoptic Gospels. But on the, on the other hand, John also left out some things, right? I mean, we, we, we consider this in the text. Go all the way to the end of the Gospel of John, if you will. All the way to the end. John chapter 20 and verse 30. We read this during our call to worship. It says, John says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Now, is John specifically, this is at the end of the narrative, right? This is, this is during the time that Jesus is preparing to ascend back to heaven. And when he says this comment, does he specifically mean that there were many other signs during that 40-day window? Does he mean that more broadly there were many other signs? And, and the reality is probably both are true. 
there was probably a particular concentration of Jesus' demonstration of his power to the disciples during that 40-day window between his resurrection and his ascension. But we also know there were many other signs done all throughout his ministry that verified who Jesus was. So we know that John left out a lot. In fact, John even tells us he left out a lot. And so why did he make the choices that he did? He was driving at a specific response. So I'm going to do something just a little bit different. What I want you to do is take your Bible and go to the beginning of the Gospel of John. And what I want for us to do is simply thumb through and reminisce about the story that John tells. And as we think it through, think overall what John is trying to accomplish. He is trying to elicit belief from his hearer, from his reader. So John begins, as we read during our call to worship, John 1.1, in the beginning. Now, those words are significant. Why? You can talk to me. You can answer. Why are those words significant? What? Right. It harkens back to Genesis 1. So John begins his gospel with the exact same wording as the beginning of the story. In the beginning, he actually is linking what he is about to say with eternity past. Now that's significant because he is about to present Jesus as the eternal son of God. In the beginning was, and now we meet Jesus, the word In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so Jesus is presented at the beginning. We meet then, so in this prologue that goes all the way down through uh, verse verse 18, we're introduced to who Jesus is. And now we get to the story of his presentation to the world. So we meet a voice in the wilderness, John the Baptist, not the same John as the author of the book, but John the Baptist, who was the one who announced the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, verse 29 of chapter 1. Later in the chapter, the disciples are called, beginning with Philip and Nathaniel. In chapter 2, we come across Jesus' first miracle, In fact, we know not only is it the first recorded miracle in the Gospel of John, but it is the first miracle that Jesus performed at all. And we see that followed then closely by Jesus cleansing the temple in chapter 2. Now, this this is going to, here in, in two chapters, is going to elicit a response from the religious leaders who we'll meet in just a moment. But in John chapter 3, we see a religious leader who is responsive to the message of Jesus. His name is Nicodemus. And of course, in chapter 3, he has this dialogue with this man named Nicodemus in which he presents that you must be born again. You must be transformed by the message of Jesus Christ. Again, it goes to this very heart of the right response to Jesus is belief. And of course, perhaps the most well-known verse in all of Scripture is chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him. That's the central message of John. 
Now, that's not the theme verse, but it is probably the most known, and it in many ways does well summarize John's message. So we then get into chapter 4. Chapter 4 is this dialogue with a woman in Samaria at a well in which he gives the first of these I am statements. These I am statements are again significant because they hearken back to the Old Testament. The introduction of God at the burning bush, I am that I am. And Jesus comes to be seen to us as the Savior of the world later in the chapter. A blind man is healed in chapter 5, and this is what really prompts a dialogue with the religious power of the day. As Jesus clashes up against them, we see that in the last part of chapter 5. 5,000 men are fed in chapter 6 besides women and children. Jesus uses this later in the chapter as an illustration. Again, another I, I am statement, I am the bread of life. We move on to um, chapter 7 and chapter 8 as the story of Jesus continues to unfold. Jesus again has another clash in the last part of chapter 8 with the religious leaders, which culminates in this conversation that begins in verse 48, where they are accusing Jesus of being a, a, a product of Satan, that, that Jesus' ministry is a false one. And that really brings to a head, it really comes to a head in verse 9 when he heals this, um, this blind man. And you'll remember the story of the blind man is amusing because they then call him in and say, well, who is this Jesus? Like, is, is he who he claims to be? And the blind man basically says, I don't know, but I can see. Like, like you consider for yourself. Like, th this miracle of giving sight to the blind that was a unique feature of Messiahship has been evidenced. And he's like, I don't really want to get into the middle of this, but guys, I was blind and now I see. Like, figure it out for yourselves. And so he's trying to be a little bit, um, you know, political, <laughs> right? He's trying to kind of trying to dance around the issue, but it's pretty obvious what is taking place here. And of course, they recognize that. We know well John chapter 10, Jesus is presented as the true shepherd, and then in verse 11, we see Lazarus dies. Jesus weeps because he is with us in the difficulties of life. But yet, he reminds us too in a, in a very powerful way that he is the resurrection. And of course, that is a foreshadowing of his own resurrection. Now, it is at this point that there seems to be a real turn in the people's response to Jesus. And so the plot to Jesus begins in the last part of chapter 11. Jesus is now anointed for burial by this woman in verse 12, kind of a, a, a prelude, a, a, a foreshadowing of the cross, which Jesus explicitly tells us about in chapter 12, verse 27. And so now we are moving towards the cross. In verse 13, we see this, this whole section of John that is, that is unique to John. It starts with the Last Supper when Jesus washes his disciples' feet. 
And then Jesus teaches them this new commandment in the last part of 13. As I have served you, you are to serve others. His discourse continues, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16. And these chapters are rich. I mean, we spent a lot of time going paragraph by paragraph through these last instructions of Jesus. And it's almost like as if, I mean, everything's been moving pretty rapidly up to this point, and it's almost like as if John just kind of puts everything in slow motion. Because he now takes three and four chapters to cover what probably only happened in a matter of hours. Whereas all of the preceding material probably had taken place over over a matter of months. So so John just slows down for a minute when we get into chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. In chapter 18, we now see the lead up to the crucifixion itself. He is betrayed by this one who betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Of course, this is the passion of Christ. We know well this story, and we see a lot of other details coming into play from the Synoptic Gospels. Now Jesus is, is mocked, he is beaten by soldiers, last part of 18, chapter 19, and then he is crucified, chapter 19. But the story doesn't end there, and that's where we found ourselves on Resurrection Sunday, as we celebrated the, the reality, the truth that Jesus rose again. In chapter 20, we see the discovery by those that follow him that he is now risen again. And then he appears to them in the last part of chapter 20 and in verse 21. And that brings us now to the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, uh, 21, rather, where we were just reading a moment ago, or chapter, I guess it's chapter 20. Uh, verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of dis- his disciples. Verse 21 reminds us of kind of those last days of Jesus. And then the story ends, at least from John's um, accounting of it. We know from other um, gospel writers that he would then ascend to heaven, promising his return. So John did all this. He he made the choices that he did to include what he did, to not include what he did, because, again, he was driving towards a purpose, and that is that knowing Jesus should cause us to believe in him. Why is that so important? Well, belief in Christ is required for salvation. We need Christ. We have no hope of saving ourselves apart from him. And so John presents this eternal Son of God who came to heaven, who lived a perfect life, who died on our behalf, and who was risen again through the power of the Father. Because we need Him. We must have Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, this this one who is presented as the perfect Lamb of God by John the Baptist near the beginning of the book, to die on our behalf. And in fact, the verb to believe is mentioned 90 times in these 21 chapters. 90 times the gospel writer reminds us, brings us back to the fact that our, our response should be belief. And so in chapters 20, verse 31, 
He says, okay, I've made these choices. There are some things that are not in here. But verse 31, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John said, I've given you these things explicitly so that you believe in Jesus. Why does that matter? Why is that important? Well, last part of verse 31, that believing you may have life in his name. John is a book of life. It is a book that gives eternal life. Why? Because that source is Jesus. Now, you say, well, I'm already a Christian. I'm already a believer. I have repented of sin and depended on Jesus Christ, why is it important for us to consider this book? Because Jesus is our source. Everything flows from Him. Eternal life, forgiveness of sin, right relationship with God, all flow from the ministry of Jesus Christ. And don't you remember that Jesus gave us an illustration of this in chapter 14? I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so it's not just a matter of, yes, I believed once on Jesus, but that there's that ongoing life-sustaining power that comes from Jesus Christ, who is our source of hope and life, life eternal. So John gives us this purpose so that we may continue to believe on him, that we may continue to look to him as our source. But for any who are here or watching by video, that there's never been a time when you have depended on Jesus Christ, what is offered to you in this this narrative of Jesus is eternal life. Again, John 3.16, God loved the world so much that He gave Jesus, the only begotten Son of the Father, the one who was the Word at the beginning of time. He gave His only begotten Son so that... Whoever believes in Him, the one who believes into Him, the one that puts their confidence in Him alone, might live eternally. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish. We need not be separated from God for all eternity, but have everlasting life. And so I wonder this morning, has there ever been a time when you have repented of your sin and depended on Jesus Christ alone? I think I told you at the outset of this uh, series uh, a story of two Jehovah's Witnesses that came to our door some years back, and it was a father and a son. And as I was arguing with the father, I kept looking at the son, looking him in the eye and saying, read the Gospel of John. See what it says. Read the Gospel of John. Why? Because it presents Jesus for who He truly is and calls us to believe in Him as a response. It's interesting that John introduces Christ at the beginning of the book with the title, Word. A a, a unique title in some sense. This emphasizes Jesus as the revelation of God. But beyond that, it emphasizes the continuity of of God's revelation. The written word points to the living word. You know, sometimes you'll find 
in modern American Christianity, this, this false division, this false dividing line. You'll hear it in sentiments such as, well, we don't want to get bogged down in doctrinal issues. We just want to focus on loving and serving Jesus. Or, or something like, you know, well, as long as we agree on Christ, that's all that matters. This is what's called a false dichotomy. Because, well, what Jesus are we to agree on? I mean, there are many versions of Jesus. If we don't agree on the Jesus who is revealed in the Gospels and is explained in the rest of the New Testament, we are simply not talking about the same Jesus. The purpose of the New Testament, and of course the purpose of John in particular, is to elicit specific understanding and belief in Jesus. So why Jesus? Why this Jesus? Because He alone is qualified to save. His miracles prove His position as revealing God. Right? You'll remember that the, it is the miracles, it is the signs that elicit such a strong, visceral response from the religious leaders. And especially the ones related to his Messiahship, healing blindness. And the one that signifies his power over death, raising Lazarus, which really points forward to the ultimate evidence of who Jesus Christ is, and that is the resurrection. We made the point on Resurrection Sunday that the resurrection is the hinge pin of everything about Jesus Christ. If there is no resurrection, there is no salvation in Christ. Oh, but we can rejoice that Christ lives. He is risen. Furthermore, this Jesus is uniquely qualified to save because he makes several statements affirming his unity with the Father. If you read the Gospel of John and study it as we have, you'll note that there is no, there's no ambiguity about what Jesus is claiming. He understood it. His followers understood it. Even his opponents, his enemies, understood it. And in fact, uniquely they understood it. In a very special, um, clear way, they understood exactly what Jesus was claiming. And, and at the very, at the very uh, peak of those claims was these statements, I am. You remember that when they came to him in the garden, and they asked if he was Jesus, he said, I am. And his word itself was so powerful that it knocked them off their feet. That same word in the beginning in Genesis spoke the world into existence. This is God in flesh. And then, of course, there's nothing that more demonstrates His qualification as our Savior than His death on our behalf, His substitutionary, vicarious death, and His resurrection, which authorizes Him to be our Savior. And so as we consider the Gospel of John, the question is not, is this simply a nice story? Is this good information about a man who lived and died? But is this Jesus who He claimed to be? Because if he is not, he is, he is a fraud. He is not worth 
following. He is no mere good man. But if he is who he claims to be, and the evidence that is found in the Gospel of John points to that, then there is a right response. You see, if Jesus is who he claims to be, there, a, a neutral response is not appropriate. The only appropriate response is for us to fall on our faces in humility, recognizing that He is the Savior that we need and depending on Him alone to save us. But it doesn't stop there. For the Christian, Jesus Christ is, is not only Savior, but he is, he is Lord. And so we must submit ourselves to Him each day, knowing that He is the Lord over all. And so because of that, we have a position of humility and submission to Jesus because He is the divine Son of God. That is the point that John makes about who Jesus is. And then he elicits from us, he calls for us to respond to that. Knowing who Jesus is must cause us to believe in Him. Father, we thank You for these moments that we've had together and really for this last year and a half or so that it has been a journey for us through the Gospel of John. We pray now that as we meditate on the truths that we have learned, that we would be reminded once again of who Jesus Christ is. Not only His life, death, resurrection, but really what that means for us as, as we must believe. For any who do not know Christ as Savior, we pray that their heart would be convinced of the truth of Jesus Christ. For those who have repented of sin and turned to Christ, may we be reminded afresh of who Jesus Christ is.